Sisters, leading us today in worship. You guys did an amazing job, and uh, I'm going to make sure that I'm at midweek every week. Amen? Amen. Except for women's midweek, because that would just be a little bit awkward. Uh, I do want to say uh, briefly here uh, a special, special welcome. I, I didn't get a chance to welcome him early, uh, earlier, but Tim Callio's dad is visiting us all the way from Nigeria. So good to have you. And I just want to say, I just want to say, if, if Tim Callio has done anything to you, if he's hurt you, if he's taken something from you, then you can go to his dad and share it with his dad. So great to have you with us. And I can see already in just a short little conversation that we had uh, that the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Uh, thank you so much uh, to my beautiful wife uh, for sharing for communion. <laughs> thank you so much, as always, uh, really trying to make sure that your heart is connected to the cross. And that way, uh, when you lead, you lead with genuineness, authenticity, and you inspire the women to have the same heart that you have for the Lord. So thank you so much for your sharing. And thank you so much, my brother, just Lane. Bro, I noticed that you took off the leather jacket. I don't know if it ended up in the contribution plate. But, uh, bro, that was incredible. Thank you so much for your heart. And I, I, I don't know... Um, I don't know if I should say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, last week, uh, we were just short of our faith goal of $100,000. And uh, just Lane came up and he said, hey, bro, if we're short just a little bit, let me know, and I'll make up the difference, whatever it is. And I came back later to him and I said, hey, bro, there's no need for it because the church has already surpassed it. And it reminded me of what you shared. And just a little bit after that, Moses had to stop them from giving because their hearts were so willing to give for God. And, bro, you have that heart, and as a church, I think we've shown that we have that heart as well. Uh, please turn in your scriptures to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. We're going to have some fun today. Now, I don't want to dive too deep in Revelation. You know, Revelation's a tricky book. Because when you start studying it out and you start reading it, it's so easy to just get stuck in one place. And so I don't want to dive too deep into Revelation today. I just want to kind of skip along the surface of the top. And I, I promise you, even in doing that, that there's enough there in Revelation, there's enough there for us to look at today that God is going to move and work in our hearts in such a powerful way. We know that the book of Revelation was written in 95 AD. It was written during a time of very heavy persecution. In fact, at this point, Domitian had become the emperor of Rome, and Domitian was considered by the scriptures to be Nero reborn. Not, not this Nero, but the emperor Nero. This Nero is reviving the Nero name. He's changing the perspective of the Nero name. And it, it, was, it was such a, a tumultuous time for disciples. Many disciples were hiding underground. Many disciples were killed for their faith. In fact, John himself, the writer of the book of Revelation, was boiled in oil and survived. And then the emperor saw that he couldn't kill John. And so he had him exiled to the island of Patmos. And it's on the island of Patmos that Jesus appeared to him and gave him the revelation 
the vision that we now read in all of these chapters here in the book of Revelation. The theme of the, Re- of the book of Revelation is, is about being faithful to the end. But I was, I was shocked when I was looking at how many times the word throne is in the book of Revelation. Go to Revelation 1, 4, briefly. In Revelation 1, verse 4, the Bible says, Grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come, past, present, and future. And from the seven spirits before his throne. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13. I know where you live. Where Satan has his throne. See, God has a throne, but Satan also has a throne. And God's throne's up in heaven, and so you can guess where Satan's throne is. Revelation 3, verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Is that a cranking? That when you overcome as a disciple, kind of like Santa Claus at Christmas time, when you were little and you got to sit on Santa Claus's lap, and you got to take a picture with Santa Claus? Well, God ain't no Santa Claus, but he's still going to give you an opportunity to sit with him on his throne to share in his splendor and his majesty. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 13. The Bible says, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Revelation 6 verse 15. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. That's for non-Christians. They go, God, please, please hide us. Hide us from him. Hide us from you. Because we're scared about what's going to happen because we haven't lived the way we needed to live here on earth. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. There before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne. That sounds a little bit like Toronto, doesn't it? People from every nation, tribe, Every, every country on earth lives here in Toronto. Verse, chapter 8, verse 3. An angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was, he was given, lost my place here. Where, where, would he go? where would he go? Verse 3. He was given incense to offer. There we are. With the prayers of all the saints. And on the golden altar before the throne. Chapter 14, verse 3. And they sang a new song before the throne. Some of us were singing Jerusalem for the first time today. We were like, wow, this is crazy. It's coming to all kinds of stuff. You know, believe it or not, that song changes every time we sing it. It's always a new song, amen. Revelation 16, verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne. Chapter 19, verse 4, 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. Finally, chapter 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now is the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. You know, as I was, I was looking through this, this book, 
and noticing how many times the word throne is in the book, it occurred to me that that really was such an important piece of the message. At a time when there was so much tribulation on earth, at a time where there's disciples going through so much in their own personal walk with God, they needed to be reminded that God is still very much sitting on his throne. That he overall is in control. He's king. He's in charge. And ultimately through God, God will give us the victory. Are you with me here this morning? I have three points for us this morning. Number one is the glory of the throne. Number two, dedication to the throne. And finally, victory by the throne. We're going to be centering our study in Revelation 4 and 5. Turn with me to Revelation 4, verse 1. The glory of the throne. God's throne is glorious. In fact, right here we find in verse 1, John is brought before the throne room of God. He says, after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. I mean, you got to admit, if you saw a door standing open to get into heaven, wouldn't you go through it? I was like, oh, baby, I'm coming through. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Can you imagine this? Being brought, quote, in the spirit through the very throne room of God. As you walk in, you just are, are just in awe at the beauty and the majesty and the splendor of just the throne. And then you notice that there's someone sitting on the throne. <laughs> you know, I forget, many years ago when my wife and I were leading the San Diego church, we were starting a campus ministry at the University of San Diego. And for those that don't know, the University of San Diego is like one of the best private Catholic schools in the entire country. And so we went and we were, we were kind of spying out the land with some of the disciples there. And we wanted to start a campus ministry there. And so we we're looking at all the different places that we could have Bible talk. And I mean, it was, it was shocking because, I mean, there, were, there was people streaking on campus at a Catholic university. But we noticed as we were going around the campus that there was a gigantic cathedral, I mean, just a gigantic cathedral. And so my wife and I, with the couple that we were, you know, spying out the area with, we go, hey, let's go check it out. And so we tried to get in through the front of the cathedral, but the, the doors were locked. Nobody was let in. And so we're like, okay, well, let's just go around the back and see if we can get in that way. And so we walked around to the back of the cathedral, and my, this is a gorgeous, gigantic, beautiful building. And so we, we went through the back, and... And we found an open door, and so we decided to go check out this beautiful cathedral. So we, we walked in, and it's one of those places that is so big and so, like, awesome that when you step, you hear the echoes. You're like, doom, 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 doom. Doom, 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 doom. And I'm like, wow, this is so cool. And so we noticed that in the front of this, this whole auditorium or, you know, I don't know what you call it, just a big room, there was like a throne I mean, it was just a giant chair. And I don't know if that's where the priest sat when he did his mass or whatever it was, but it literally felt like a throne room. There were stairs leading up to it, and we were just in awe at the beauty of this, this room. And so we're walking around like, 
it's walking. And we get over there, and before we could sit down on the throne, because we all wanted to sit down on that throne, there was a, a maintenance guy that was there at the building. He goes, hold on, what are you doing in here? And we go, oh, we're so sorry. We were just touring the campus, and we saw an open door, and we decided to come in and check it out. He goes, you can't be in here. I go, okay, no problem. We'll, we'll leave. But when do you guys have services here? He goes, oh, no. We don't have services here. We have services at another building down the street. And that, that stuck out to me. I'm like, here you have this amazing building, incredible building. I mean, sadly, a little bit nicer than Elia Middle School. Amen? <laughs> Not by much, just a little bit. There's no, there's no throw. And I, I miss the echo, you know. But amazing, gorgeous, incredible building. And yet it's all hollow on the inside. And I go, isn't that so much of what modern day Christianity is? It's all pretty on the outside. It's all beautiful laser light show, amazing music, amazing gimmicks, amazing speakers, but nothing on the inside. You know, when John saw the throne, he saw that there was a God sitting on the throne. We don't serve an empty throne. You with me here? We serve a, a God that is on his throne and will always be on his throne. Past, present, and future. And when you make Jesus Lord of your life and give Jesus the throne in your own heart, then you become a part of God's glorious kingdom. And no matter what's going on, you can find assurance that God will always be sitting on his throne. Verse 3. And the one who sat there had an appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that showed like an emerald circled around the throne. A rainbow at that time meant much, much different things than it means now. It was a symbol of a promise that God made to his people. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white, symbolizing purity, and crowns of gold on their heads. Can you imagine that? You get a chance to sit next to God's throne with a crown on your head? From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were burning. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne, there were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox, kind of like, kind of like Tim Callio. And the third had a face like a man. That's like Tim Kasosi. Little face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around. And each, uh, even under its wings, day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The glory of the throne. You know, in Revelation we find what we call apocalyptic literature. And that is, uh, you could kind of classify it as, as literature that's, that's written in a sort of code. There are familiar symbols and numbers and things used to communicate with disciples that, that would know what those things meant. But if the Romans picked up 
the letter, they, they wouldn't be able to understand it because it was all symbolic. And, and, and we're, we're sort of like when you tell an inside joke to a friend and somebody else kind of hears it and like, what are you guys talking about? You ever, you ever had one of those situations? These were like inside jokes for the disciples. But you go, well, what are these numbers? What do these symbols mean? Well, just the, the small little symbols we see right here in verse 4 or chapter 4. The numerology, number 3 in Revelation is symbol, symbolic of completion. That's why you have the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, complete, God completed. You have the three days that Jesus died for, completing the mission, completing the will of God on earth. The number four is symbolic of creation. That's why you have the four directions, north, east, west, and south. The four directions symbolizes all of creation. The number seven symbolizes perfection. It's perfection. Just before this, we talked about the seven churches of Asia in Revelation. And, and, and that was a message not just to those seven churches, but to all of the churches in all of the world and even in our generation. All of them, perfectly, all of God's people together. Then there's the number six, one short of perfection, imperfection, evil, or sin. In fact, the word sin itself is an archery term, and it means to fall short of the mark. And that's what sin is. It's not just doing the bad things. It's failing to do what God has called us to do. Number 10. The number 10, it stands for a mass of something. You know, we, we still use the number 10 in this way today. When you talk about a giant group of people, you go, oh, there's, there's 20,000. There's 10,000. You round it up to the nearest 10. You would be on that? And so the number 10 stands for a mass of something. And then there's the number 12, which is symbolic of God's people. And that's why you have 12 tribes in the Old Testament, Joseph's, uh, excuse me, Jacob's sons. And then in the New Testament, you have the 12 apostles symbolizing the old covenant, the old people of God, the old kingdom, and the spiritual kingdom of God. And then there's the number 24. All of God's people from the Old Testament plus all of God's people from New Testament time. 12 plus 12, all of them all together. You with me on that? Okay, okay, well, there's, that's the numbers. What about the creatures? Well, the creatures, you have, number one, the ox. Well, that symbolizes all of the domesticated animals on earth. Secondly, you have the lion, which symbolizes all of the wild animals on earth. So you've got domesticated and wild. Then you've got the eagle. That symbolizes all the winged creatures, the flying creatures. And finally, you got a man. And guess what the man symbolizes? You guys, us, mankind. And so what's he saying right here by, by using these four symbols? He's talking about all of creation. The entire world was there at the throne room of God. And the Bible says that John was looking at the throne. And there he was surrounded by the 24 elders. All of God's people from the Old Testament. And all of God's people from the New Testament. You with me on that? And as they were worshiping there at the throne, all creation... All of God's people. The Bible said that lightning started coming out of the throne. There were peals of thunder. It was powerful. You ever been close to lightning before? You know, I'll never forget, a long time ago when I was growing up, I woke up at about 4.30 in the morning to this loud boom. Yeah, I even shook Issa right there. Let's try it again. Boom. Mufasa. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it shook me. It woke me up out of a dead sleep. 
And I didn't know what it was. It sounded like a bomb had gone off next door. And so I stood up, and I looked out the window, and I saw that my neighbor's house was on fire, that a lightning bolt had struck the house, and it caught fire. Well, my dad was a paramedic slash firefighter, and I was fairly young, and so I, I ran into his room and woke him up and said, Dad, the neighbor's house is on fire. So we threw on some clothes, and we ran outside and ran across to their house, and it was, it was shocking. I'd never seen a lightning strike that close. The lightning bolt hit this, this pole that was in their yard. It went down the pole, created two separate trenches. One trench went to a little water thing that they had, and it literally just, uh, there was a, a burning trench in the grass that was still smoking. A trench that went all the way, and it went surrounded the water thing. Another trench went around a tree, circled the tree, then went over to a bunch of propane tanks that were connected to their stove in their house. And it touched the propane tanks. It somehow did not ignite them, but blew the burners off their stove inside the house. I go, well, that is the power of God. And that's what John was coming into contact with when he came in front of the throne room of God. You know, I think sometimes in a church, we overuse the word awesome. We go, bro, you're awesome. We even did that a little earlier in our service, right? We went around, you're awesome, you're awesome. The word awesome literally means a mixed feeling of reverence, fear, and wonder. I doubt that Nero caused, <laughs> caused you to have a mixed feeling of reverence, fear, and wonder. I mean, you're great, bro. I can't imagine. I can't imagine that divine, little divine, sweet divine, caused you to have an overwhelming sense of fear, wonder, and reverence. But when you classify God's presence, God's kingdom as awesome, it fits. It fits. But you know, sometimes I think we fail to understand that what John experienced up in heaven is what we experience when we come together on Sunday mornings. What, what God experienced in heaven, his presence. Now, we don't experience it in a physical way, but in a spiritual way. When God's presence is there, the same power, the same wonder is available to us. Turn to Matthew 21. You know, I think sometimes as disciples, we lose our all for the kingdom. We forget what we're a part of. Like the Israelites who left Egypt, we start looking back and we start romanticizing our, our previous life. Oh, I remember when I used to sit around pots of meat, <laughs> eating leeks all day. It's like, bro, no, you weren't. You were getting whipped. What you talking about? You're getting beat up. You hated your life. But you get out of Egypt and you forget about it. It's like when a woman gives birth. They give birth, and three seconds later they go, I'll never have another child. Two weeks later they go, I can't wait to have another child. You forget about what you went through. And you forget that that's what drove you to the kingdom of God. Matthew 21, verse 42. Jesus said to them, Jesus said to the religious, have you never read in the scriptures? 
The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on anyone in whom it falls, it will be crushed. You know, I remember reading this and being shocked by a simple fact that the kingdom can be taken away from a person and that the kingdom can be taken away from a group. Yo, but bro, bro, we're part of the Toronto International Christian Church. We're part of the sold out discipling movement. But you know what happens when people stop repenting? God snatches the kingdom of God from whatever group and even from whatever individual. You know, for me, I have a great appreciation for what we have in God's kingdom because I remember a time where the kingdom of God was taken away from me. I remember back in 2006, we were struggling. Our church had gone through several years of turmoil, had stopped repenting. There were people that were in major sin. There was no church discipline. People stopped discipling each other, stopped calling people to repent. And consequently, we went from 65 disciples way back out in Hawaii down to 40 disciples. But, but it was, that's, that's a loose number. It wasn't really 40 disciples. Very few, few people showed up to midweeks. I appreciate Isaiah bringing that in the song. Some people say you don't have to go to midweek. But you better be there too. <laughs> and I'll never forget, we were hurting. We, we hadn't seen a baptism in a year and a half. 40 so-called disciples, no baptisms in a year and a half. Oh, man, what do we do? I was trying to just figure it out, and I was trying to repent. And thankfully, we, we saw there's a little beam of light in Portland. There's a little group that was still doing it. We go, wow, what are they doing over there? And so we went. We saw what they were doing. We go, wow, this is awesome. This is special. We had Kip, who now leads our movement. He goes, hey, I'll come out and I'll help you guys fix your church. We go, please, <laughs> please come out. He came out, and sadly, as he preached, most of our church never came back. We went from 40 to 12 people. You go, well, what did he preach? I'll never forget this. It was a Friday night. It was our leadership group all together. He goes, hey, you guys want to fix your church? It's going to come down to five things. I was like, oh, okay, five things. No pad out. Let's go. Five things. What's number one? He goes, number one, you need to make sure that every person in your church has quiet time. you got to make sure everybody has their own personal relationship with God. I go, okay. Number two, so you need to make sure everybody in your church is in a discipling relationship. Where there's a partnership, you can call it whatever you want. Partnership, accountability, partnership, whatever you want. Call it discipling. Just make sure that there's actual discipling. There's accountability, there's encouragement that each person takes responsibility for other disciples in the church. He goes, number three, you got to call people to give a contribution. That's a part of our relationship with God. There's a monetary calling for us to give to God from the scriptures. He goes, number four, is everybody's got to be a part of an evangelistic Bible talk. Evangelism is not a gift. It's not an option. It's a command of God. And in the Bible, they did it in groups. They evangelized together as Bible talks. Or you could call it something else. But it's, it's essentially a Bible talk. And number five, 
You got to expect everybody to show up to all the meetings of the body. You know, it was shocking to me. I go, wow. These are all the things I remember when I was a young Christian. But our church had drifted so far away from them that they seemed like a new teaching. We decided to repent. Again, our church of 40, so many people left. Never came back. We were left with 12 on Sunday. And that was kind of awkward for church. <laughs> hey, bro, I'll do the welcome. You do the prayer. <laughs> we need a couple song leaders up here. How about we just have one song leader and then have a few people there in the audience to actually sing along. And, and Kip preached that Sunday. He said, what can 12 disciples do? Though, though those 40 disciples had not seen a baptism in a year and a half, through our repentance in that first year with just 12 of us, we saw 20 disciples baptized in a Christ. You know, I want to ask you this morning. How much do you appreciate the kingdom of God? How much do you appreciate what God has given you right here? Do you realize how special this is? That there are cities still in the world that don't have this there? And sometimes we fail to appreciate the opportunity that God has given us. The glory, the glory of the throne. Because it's only found at the throne. Number two, dedication to the throne. Revelation chapter 4 verse 9. When the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, all God's people from the Old Testament and the New Testament, they fall down and worship him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne. And they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will, they were created and have their being. You know, this is powerful. The Bible records that all of God's people, when they see the majesty and the glory of the throne, they take off their own throne, or their own crown, their own lordship of their life, their own kingship of their life, and they go, here, here it is. And they lay their crowns before the Lord. And they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God. You know, very interestingly, this phrase right here in the Greek, Lord and God, is, is Kyrios Kaitheos. And it was actually Domitian's favorite title for himself. In other words, the Roman emperor would force people to come and to call him Kyrios Kaitheos. And if they didn't, he'd kill him. And yet the disciples go, the crown is not going to Caesar. The crown is going to be put before God. Because he created us. And by his will, we are here. He's our Kyrios Kaitheos. You know, I, I, have to, I have to commend the church. You guys not only blew out your missions contribution last week and did it in an incredible way, but that church service was the worst church service I think I've been to in a long time. You know, i got to be humble here. 
This is why a Hawaii guy should not plan when the church should start meeting outdoors. I mean, we looked at the weather, and we thought it looked great. We decided to have a park service, went out there for park service. And right before park service, I noticed that it was going to be a little cooler than usual. And so I made sure that I put an extra coat on for church. Turned out that I was grossly unprepared for that weather. And so were most of you. I, I have never been to a church service that was that miserable. And it wasn't the church. The church was awesome. But it was so cold. It was so cold. So cold. But you know what I was, you know what I appreciated? Even though I shortened my sermon from like 45 minutes to 10 minutes. I appreciated that there was not one disciple that I saw, to my knowledge, that left service and went and hid in their car. <laughs> not one disciple. And trust me, there were disciples that got sick after that Sunday. I mean, it was like, I, I was tired after Sunday because my body was shivering the whole day. And I think my body was just so tired from trying to keep warm. And yet there was not one disciple that walked out of church, that went and sat in the car, that tried to get comfortable. Every single disciple stuck it through. And you know what's amazing? What was amazing is that the visitors stayed too. And I think they stayed because they saw that you guys stayed. Why? Because Kyrios Kaitheos. Jesus is our Lord and our God. Why do we do that? Why do we put ourselves through such misery at church? It was cold. I mean, everybody was trying to be good hearted. I could tell because you could hear it in everybody's voices. Come on, bro. <laughs> People's eyes were closed, not because they were meditating. They were just trying to focus on being warm. I'm pretty sure that not one single person remembered one word from my lesson. Don't you, don't you even lie. You weren't even taking notes. You weren't even taking notes. You had your hands in your pockets. You didn't, you didn't, even, you didn't even want to bring out your pen to take the notes. Kirk took notes. Kirk took notes on his little iPad device. <laughs> Bro, there's like five notes there. There's like five notes. Bro, my sermon was short, but it wasn't that short. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides. And sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the line of the tribe of Judah. The root of David, Jesus, has triumphed. And he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. You know, this was not the type of seal that you might think of when you think of a seal on a letter or an envelope. 
a wax seal. Roman seals, when they sealed a scroll, the scrolls were bound with seven cords. They would seal it off in that way. And to open it, you would have to break the little cords on the scroll. And primarily, the thing that they used that, that, that most commonly had seven bindings was when they would write their own will. A Roman will with seven seals. And so I think for the disciples of the first century, this was a very clear message. This scroll with seven seals represented the very will of God. And yet no one could open it. You know, we live in a time where so few, they can open it, but they choose not to open the will of God, not to open the scroll. In fact, so much of modern-day Christianity is plagued by so much false doctrine. In 300 AD, after years of the church being super fruitful, expanding out to the entire known world, there's a drifting away from the original teaching. Some say that there was a plague, and so parents got a little paranoid that their kids were not going to be saved. And so into the church creeps this doctrine of infant baptism, baptizing babies. Not, not in the Bible. Not something the scriptures teach. No example even found in the Bible. In addition to that, shortly after that, Emperor Constantine decides to get baptized very late in his life as a Roman emperor. And so all of a sudden, Christianity, which had become very unpopular in the Roman world, becomes popular. And if you want to go somewhere in business, if you want to go somewhere in society, if you want to go somewhere in politics, you should become a Christian. And so consequently, Christianity starts to morph. It starts to drift. It starts to change. People stop opening the will of God. And the church starts to look a lot like the, the, the Roman emperor and the Roman government. You have the emperor, the pope, and then you have all the senate, the cardinals, and so on and so forth. Later on, all the way in 1835, Another doctrine creeps in that has now become the most popular false doctrine of all time. The sinner's prayer. I remember, I, I grew up thinking that this is how you got saved. When you felt convicted, when you felt like your heart wanted to change, and you were sincere about it, you just bowed your head and you prayed, God, please forgive me of my sins. Sometimes it happened at the end of a church service. You get the guy on the guitar, he starts strumming along. And dun, 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 dun. If you want to you give your life to Jesus, lower your head and say these words. I said that prayer thousands of times. I remember one time I was at a summer camp. I heard a sermon. I was super convicted because I was living a very worldly lifestyle. And one of the counselors sees me in the corner. I was just sulking a little bit and down. He goes, hey, what's going on? I said, oh, i just, you know, feeling a little out. He goes, well, are, are you saved? said, dude, I don't know. I mean, I said the prayer 3,682 times, but I'm not sure it worked. He said, well, how about we say it again just to make sure? I go, look, man, I've said this prayer so many times, I don't even want to say it again. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, what if I say it for you? <laughs> no, I was probably 11, 12 years old. And I remember thinking, wow. You could say this prayer and save other people? 
why don't we just pray for everybody and call it a day? <laughs> you know, this, this concept was first taught by a Presbyterian minister, Charles Finney. His, his goal was to develop a theology in which he would preach primarily to the front row of the church. And they called it the anxious seat. His goal was to convict you so much in the front row. And you felt so guilty that in your guilt, you would cry out and you would raise your hand. And he taught that the Holy Spirit was looming above your head. And all you had to do is touch it, raise your hand, and you would be saved. This guy was not accepted by the, the popular Christianity of his time. He was considered a heretic by many. But his doctrine began to spread. In fact, he's quoted saying these words. The church has always felt it necessary to have something of this kind to answer this very purpose. In the days of the apostles, baptism answered this purpose. The gospel was preached to the people, and then all those who were willing to be on the side of Christ were called out to be baptized. It held the place that the anxious seat does now as a public manifestation of their determination to be Christians. He actively understood that he was replacing the Bible theology with his own. In 1860, his doctrine turned into the inquiry room. So instead of just raising your hand and touching the Holy Spirit, you were brought into the pastor's chambers and you would pray with the pastor. This was developed by Dwight Moody. 1900s, the term sinner's prayer came to being because there was a guy by the name of Billy Sunday, a famous baseball player, who started propelling and teaching this doctrine. And finally, in 1940, a guy by the name of Billy Graham, one of the most famous televangelists of all time, perpetuated this teaching, and it spread like wildfire all throughout the known world. You know, why are people so convinced by these false teachings that are not found in the Bible? They're not even found historically in the early days of Christianity. But let's keep reading right here. Chapter 5, verse 5. Then one of the elders said to him, do not weep. See the line of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. You know, what stands out to me here is it took a slain lamb. It took a crucified lamb to be able to open the will of God. You cannot understand God's will unless you're first willing to carry your cross. Turn to Romans 12. Romans 12. Let's be real. Some of us, we get a little fuzzy on doctrine. We get a little fuzzy on doctrine. You know why we start getting fuzzy on doctrine? It's not because the Bible's changed. The Bible's very clear. It's because it's hard to accept. And when we start to desire to pick back up our cross and throw it back down, to stop sacrificing, to stop living an uncomfortable life, people around us die, and we, we want to justify their life and their relationship with God, and so we compromise our own salvation by compromising our doctrine. Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. You know, the problem with a living sacrifice they often squirm off the altar. <laughs> Holy and pleasing to God, 
This is your true and proper worship. Get this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You ever notice how when people fall away, they get all wonky? People can leave the church for a couple months and get together with them, and it's like they never even studied the Bible before. Because they dropped their cross. They dropped their cross. You know, I, I, I'm so excited about Women's Day. I'm so excited about Women's Day. And the reason why is because there is nothing better than the will of God. The Bible says God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. You know, sadly what happens is we, we feel a sense of unfulfillment in our lives. And instead of running to God's will, we, we seek after other things to fill us up. Whether it be relationships, money, drugs, alcohol, partying, etc. Then we experience those things, but, but they're, not, they're not pleasing to us. In fact, they leave us worse off than when we started. But in our emptiness, we feel, again, a sense of depression and sadness and unfulfillment. And so what do we do? Instead of going back to God's will, we start looking for more things to fill us up. And it's only when we stop and go, wow, i got to get back to God's will. i got to get back to being a disciple. i got to get back to sharing my faith and making other disciples and really living it out. There are so many women all throughout Toronto that have been beaten up, abused, viewed as sex objects, molested, heartbroken. And we as disciples have an opportunity to introduce them to the most exciting thing on earth. And truly the only thing that could ever repair a broken heart and bring fulfillment to one's life. Yes, there's glory at the throne. But we've got to make sure that we're dedicated to the throne. And then finally, let's close on out. Victory by the throne. Revelation 5 or 6. You guys with me here this morning? Yeah. I know we're getting a little deep here. We're getting a little deep. Some of y'all didn't, didn't prepare to get deep this morning. You're coming into church thinking we're going to have a little nicey-nicey sermon. Evan's going to read a, a, one of those encouraging psalms to you. But you know what? I think there's nothing more exciting than repentance. Because that's where, refreshment's, where refreshment is, Acts 319. And I pray that if, if some of us need to repent this morning, we go, it's, it's time to repent. It's time to turn ourselves in. Because then and only then can you experience the true Christian joy and fulfillment that God wants for your life. The victory by the throne. Revelation 5 or 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures. And the elders, the lamb, the seven horns, and the seven eyes, which were the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Give me that. And when he'd taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. God is hearing your prayers. And they sang a new song. You 
guys fired up about open mic night? This was impromptu, baby. This was freestyling it right here. They were inspired. They were moved. They go, we're going to break it out right here. They go, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, nation. You've made them a kingdom of priests to serve our God. And they will reign on earth. And I looked. And I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, in ten thousands times ten thousand. That's a hundred million angels. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power. And wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature, get this, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea. And all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures, all of creation said, amen. Amen. What else do you say? And the elders, God's people, fell down and worshipped. You know, I love this scripture. All of creation, the four living creatures, they go, amen. You know what I love? I love when people become disciples, or they start coming to church, and their lingo changes. (laughs) All of a sudden, everybody starts using disciple words. Like K-dates, D-times. Everybody says amen for everything. Like, hey, bro, what do you want to eat today? Uh, McDonald's. Uh, I kind of want to eat Burger King. Amen. 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 Hey, bro, I'm going to be a little late. Amen. 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 It's got to be like one of the most diverse words in the world. It's like, amen. That's like a question mark, amen. Like, are you guys with me? Amen. And then there's like the amen, like I'm surrendered. Amen. 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 And then there's like the fired up, like, amen. Amen. Then there's like the closing of your prayer, amen. Like, Father God, amen. It's like, how quick can you say it? Amen. Amen. And then there's like, I just started dating. Amen. 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 Dylan, Dylan couldn't talk for a whole day. He was only just saying amen all day long. Hey, bro, where do you want to go? Amen. 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 Fired up. Fired up. But you know, I think all of creation saying amen means that all of creation got kingdom lingo. How'd that happen? How'd that happen? 
It's because the disciples reached every single ox. They reached all them lions. Amen, Tencalio? <laughs> Amen. They reached the eagle and all of mankind. They had all heard the word of God. People from every nation, every language, every culture. You know, I believe that Tor Toronto is the most diverse city on earth. And I want you to understand. Amen? I want you to understand. It is our responsibility to evangelize our nation. I put before the singles group the other night. We had our singles devotional. I preached. I said, okay, guys, look, there are so many singles. They're your job. If you're single, your job is every other single in this city. You got to get them. If you're a campus person and you're going to York University, we got a York University, disciples. That was the three weeks in the summer response. Your, your job, your job is to get all those campus students at York University. They're your responsibility. You're a disciple. You have the truth. Do we got any Ryerson disciples in the house? We got any downtown region disciples in the house? A little shout out to downtown region. I ain't even going to ask about York region. The York region outshined us earlier, so they don't get a chance. They got home court advantage. But, but it's your responsibility. Those Ryerson students are your job. We got any marrieds and mature singles in the house? <laughs> this city, this city is filled with olders. I didn't say old. I said olders. It's filled with olders. Amen. Why do, we, why do we care? Why do we care? Because it's only in advancing the kingdom of God that we can spread the, the glory of God. And when we get people to worship God and his kingdom on earth, we can be assured that those same people will be worshiping God in heaven. You've got to worship God either way, whether you're above the earth or under the earth. Let's choose to worship God now so that we can worship God in heaven later on. And that we can stand around that throne of God and recognize the glory of the throne. This morning I challenge you to renew your dedication to the throne and to receive and to understand that victory only comes by the throne, and to God be all the glory.